Hello, and welcome to the Detroit Real Estate Experts Podcast, your place for top tips, helpful hints, and all things real estate in and around Detroit. This podcast has been so much fun to create, and many of the guests have become dear friends over the last two years. One of those friends has even become a key sponsor of this podcast. Alexandria Taylor of the Taylor Law Firm has become such a vital part of both my personal and professional life. Her law firm has supported, counseled, and represented me through several evictions of properties I own, helped with deed preparation, and so much more. She runs an amazing law firm right here in the city of Detroit, and for anyone looking for an attorney, I could not recommend her more. We have also found an amazing partnership with Mario Ria of Huntington Bank. He has been a guest on this podcast and a mortgage lender for more than 20 of my clients. Also, a generous soul who always gives more effort and care than anyone in the business. Without any hesitation, I recommend Mario for all of your mortgage and refinance needs, and have backed up that claim with my own mortgage recently. Mario is always ready and will give you the best rate available with the lowest cost up front. In fact, right now, he has a program that covers up to 10000 of your down payment and all but 500 of your lender costs, making home ownership more affordable than ever before. And when you get that home under contract, you'll need an inspector. And Shane Summers of Veterans Pride Home Inspections has been a generous sponsor, not only of this podcast, but also of my real estate team for years. We love Shane so much, we even invited him to our holiday party. His company is always available to meet your tight inspection deadline, and he delivers peace of mind as you make one of the largest financial decisions of your life. For all of your home inspection needs, call Shane from Veterans Pride Home Inspections and know that you'll be in good hands. Now, back to our podcast. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Detroit Real Estate Experts Podcast. As your host, Jay Taylor, I'm proud to introduce Mario Ria. Welcome to the podcast, Mario. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. Uh, This is actually your second appearance. We had a technical malfunction the first time and we had to reschedule, so thanks for coming back. No problem. We are going to be talking about lending because you happen to be uh, an incredible kick-ass lender for Huntington Bank. How long have you been there? Uh, All told, I've been uh, lending for 18 years through mergers. I've been there uh, a little over a year now. All right. And Huntington was purchased by, Uh, or they were the purchaser of what, big bank? TCF. Yeah, TCF. Yeah. That's cool. You guys do a lot of Detroit businesses, which is why I love you. Um, and you guys have closed a lot of loans for my team, which is incredible. Yeah, very nice. I know that uh, one of our mortgages right now is on the rocks, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, can't always win in this market. People are finding out that their pre-approval is no longer valid. Even before the expiration of the pre-approval, rates have changed, situations have uh gotten worse in some regards and they can't afford the home they thought they could. Maybe their pre-approval was 250, but that was the max and now it's like, sorry, that 250 needs to be 230, you know? What's the what's the biggest slide you've seen in one person's pre-approval? Uh well, when so fortunately most people don't max themselves out. Most people have a comfort level they have with their with their payment. You're saying most people aren't like me. <laughs> uh I didn't say that, but most people don't come to me uh, and say, what's the most I can, I can afford? They come to me with like, hey, I'm renting this right now. I want to keep my payment at X, you know, rent plus X or whatever. Everyone yeah. on the same thing. I'm like, okay. But I did have someone who, who was maxed out and probably was about 
probably was about a $25,000, $30,000 decrease that we had to have in the purchase price. Some other things were involved there too. He picked a house that had higher taxes than what we estimated. So things come into play. The taxes actually have a bigger effect on the payment, uh, more so than the interest rate. I cannot tell you the number of times a person has had a pre-approval for a certain price point, and when they try to buy that beautiful historic home, and the tax bill hits them, and they realize that it throws off their number by about 300 a month they didn't budget for. Yeah. 300 a month is a large amount to skew your principal and interest payment. Yeah, and I try and be as accurate as possible. When you don't have a property, you're just estimating. It's very challenging, but when you, when you, you, know, when you estimate on the high end, it's better for everybody, so it doesn't happen a lot. Yeah, but I mean, it's impossible to estimate if a person has a 250K pre-approval in the Bagley, 250K will land you a $2,000 tax bill. In the university district, that same 250K lands you a $7,000 tax yeah. bill. Yeah. In Ferndale, that 250K lands you an 11,000. Not really. I think Ferndale, you'd probably have to spend more like 400,000, but you'd get an 11 grand tax bill. So taxes change based on the city, based on the school. You know, I was just talking to a friend who's shopping in South Carolina, and his tax rate, uh, one street to the next, was dramatically Jeez, different. one street over. It just depends what school you're going to, right? Yeah. Yeah. Home valuations drop, taxes drop. We can do uh, loans in South Carolina, by the way. Can you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I've got a guy. <laughs> I've got a guy. <laughs> I love it. Oh, man. So, welcome to the show. Uh, I know that there's going to be uh, quite a bit we're going to talk about, so we're going to try and keep it interesting, because once you talk numbers, numbers can sometimes just gloss over and people stop listening and they hang up. So, let's start with something fun and frivolous. Uh, what is the weirdest reason a loan has been declined that's legitimate still. Like, obviously, you'll only decline a loan that really you can't close. You wouldn't do it frivolously. You wouldn't do it out of spite. Like, a, a loan that can't close usually is because, ah, they got laid off. That's normal. Or, oh, um, the home has too high a taxes and too high of insurance and you can't afford it. Um, but I'm guessing there's some weird stuff that's happened. Uh, I would say the most common uh, stuff that would, not necessarily weird, but could be weird to some people, is um, having something deposit in your bank account that you cannot explain. And Like that OnlyFans account. The, yeah, exactly. The or, husband's or, sitting or, there and he yeah. doesn't know about it. <laughs> no, not, not, not that That's weird, happened but, to me. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> not, sorry, not my OnlyFans account, but one of my clients didn't want to disclose that the money that they were getting was from an OnlyFans account. Yeah. They wouldn't to me, but they wouldn't to their uh, yeah. other people. I've had uncomfortable conversations when I used to meet with people personally, and we would pull credit, and a husband or wife didn't know about another account. Like, Ooh. wait a minute, I didn't know about that, or I didn't know about that. And we were talking face-to-face, and it was uncomfortable. But when it comes to denials, underwriting denials, the, it's, it's deposits in bank accounts. Because it's not intuitive. You think, hey, it's my money. It's my bank account. I can do whatever I want. But that's not the case when you're trying to buy a house. Those deposits are looked at, and you have to f- explain where they came from. But that's like I'm trying to think of anything else weird. Other than that, it's uh, I don't come across a lot of weird stuff. Like you know, have you ever done a loan for somebody self-employed that went as smoothly as somebody who has a W two? Yes, yeah. There are some self-employed borrowers that have been in the business for a while, structure their structure themselves, pay, getting paid as a W two employee, and they're just it's a clean cut business. It's no, I mean a, a true ten ninety nine. Like, uh, no, 
No, it's never unfortunately, easy. No, unfortunately, <laughs> self-employed borrowers uh, get asked a lot of questions. And, and you know what? There, there was a lot of, you know, we talked about this before, but there was a lot said about stated income, stated asset loans, or no doc loans. And for self-employed borrowers, that's really, that's really a, a group of people that need to have a, a limited doc uh, loan because self-employed borrowers make more than what's on paper, bottom line. If it says one thing on paper, they make more than that. I just saw the most brilliant uh, little TikTok reel, and it was this girl at a lender, and you're like, I would like to get a loan. And like, all right, what do you want to get pre-approved for? One million dollars. All right, uh, what did you make last year? One million dollars. She's like, oh, and I brought my tax returns, and hands it to her. And the, the lender's looking at the tax returns, and they say, you made $38 last year. Well, yeah, I wrote everything off. <laughs> then you didn't yeah. make a million dollars. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's. I remember the conversations around like, this is you and I talking the last time we tried to get a loan for me. Uh, when you try to write off the amount that is accurate, you pay a really large tax bill. And that's just what you have to do to then have yeah, the stated income for purchasing a home. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's uh, for self-employed borrowers. That's that's exactly the case. You know, it's really fun for me to then write off things that I'm allowed to write off, like team meals and <laughs> right. other you know travel expenses that are work related. Like there's these things I can start writing off, and they start shrinking my income down to a more stable, normal human's income, and then I can't afford that baller house. Yeah, yeah. Paying, paying, when self-employed borrowers pay themselves with a W-2, it makes things a little easier, but still there's a lot because then it's, uh, you know, I don't want to get too technical, but you have to do some analysis on the business, you know, on, the, on, the, on the company itself. And it's yeah, I heard if you it. own more than 20% of the company that's paying you, you have to like basically submit the entire company financials. Is that correct? Yeah, 25%, but yeah, 20, 25. if you're 25% or more owner, you have to, we have to get the tax returns for the business. That's awesome. So I'm going to create a shell structure where I am one twentieth or twenty percent owner, and yeah. the other eighty percent is owned by my spouse, who has a different last name, who's not on the loan. There you go. Shell game. Legit. It's legit. <laughs> is it though? Yeah. I mean, it's it. If you're not, yeah. As long as things are separate, it's it's legit. I love it. I'm going to tell my wife to change her name. <laughs> Well, you brought some really cool material that we were going to talk about. One of the things that you were going to talk about is just basics. Like a person listening here and says, I want to get a loan. What are the, like, the basics that go into it? And you got three bulleted points. I'll let you talk a little bit about the credit score, the down payment, and the debt ratio. Yeah, People don't realize how easy it actually is to dissect a loan. Those three are just so like simple, but they get complicated. Absolutely. Yes. Try to simplify it for my people. Uh, definitely, definitely. So all getting pre-approved for or getting a mortgage is talking to a lender and that lender assesses risk. And the main things to, uh, used to assess risk, are, like you mentioned, credit score, down payment, and debt ratio. Credit score is simply the history of how you make your payments. And it's, it's quantified in a score given by th uh, three major bureaus. We use TransUnion, Equifax, and Experience. So... Whatever your credit score is, that kind of sets you on a path on how we can go or what programs we can use. The higher the credit score, obviously, the more options you have. 
But if you have challenging credit, if you have some, some nicks on the credit, that doesn't mean you can't get a mortgage. That just means we have to think about it a little more closely. And there are some times when someone should wait three months or six months and then try and improve their credit to a certain point. But we can actually get a, an FHA loan down to 580. Yep. 580 is, I mean, I, I see scores these days. I would say the average credit score I see is around 680 to 700. So, you know, like to go down to 580, I think is great. And to be honest, FHA was designed for someone who doesn't have perfect credit. So they don't put you through the ringer if you have a 580 credit score. I guess, the, I guess let me revise that statement a little bit. Uh, if you have uh, dings in the most recent, like six or 12 months, we have to explain them, but that doesn't prevent you from getting a mortgage. Okay. And the better your credit you have, like I said, the more options you have. If you don't have the perfect credit, doesn't doesn't mean you can't get a mortgage, just means you're, the pool of, of options are less. Now I was reading, and this is a deep dive into credit score, because this is paragraph one of our three paragraph series here. Credit score has weights to it, and each credit reporting bureau might have weights put in different areas. So like the length of account holding is not very important for most of them, but missed payments is really important for all of them. Credit utilization is important for one but not the other. Like they all have their different like high emphasis. And so what, do you guys, like, as lenders for homes, do you default to one of the three because it's more accurate? Or do you just always use the middle of the three? Always use the middle of the three. Okay. Yeah, each one of them has their own algorithm, like you're yeah. saying, and they and they pay attention to certain things. But as a whole, you know, as a as a consumer, as a person wanting to try and buy a house, they should pay attention to the length of their, you know, like they, they it's it's nice to have in one bureau or another, it's nice to have low credit utilization, meaning if you have a thousand dollar limit to only charge up to $400 if possible, you know, or less, and then try to make those payments on time. They don't have to be all paid all of them, you know, like everything down at once, but just make your minimum payments on time. Yep, love it. Talk to me about, so in the credit score, there's this like magic number of credit utilization. You wanna stay below what percent? Yeah, usually around 35 to 40% of what you have available. Above that looks risky to people. Above that may have a little bit more, uh, a little ding, you know, one more ding attached to it, meaning that there's a little bit of an adjustment. So if you have three or four credit cards and you use one primarily and you pretty much max it out and then pay it off and then max it out and then pay it off, will they look at that maxed out moment and say this is bad or they look at like, oh, but you paid off every month, it's not bad. Yeah, look at the max out moment and say it's bad. They don't know you pay it off every month because it's a moment in time. A moment in time, a snapshot. It's You're a using snapshot a lot time. of credit. Yeah, so, and then we, we see that and your balance might be $900 and you have a thousand available. We don't know that you're gonna pay that off. We don't see the history of that. So I gotta pay off that American Express card before I have you pull my credit. Yeah, exactly. Will yeah. do. Yeah. It goes from zero to 30,000 pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> it would be better to use those smaller cards. I mean, and it's harder to manage them, I guess, but it'd be better to keep that. that it doesn't matter if you pay it off. It's, it's good to pay it off every month because the history will show that, like, like that the payments are made on time yeah. and, and it's being paid. But it, it, if we take, if we take pull credit and, the, and like I said, the balance was 900 or 980 and you only go up to a thousand and then that's what we, and that's what it sees. So I guess here's what I'll say. If you've got bad credit and you still want to get a home, you probably can, still can. 580 is not terrible credit, but everyone would say in the 500s, you don't have strong credit. 
but a 580 gets you an FHA mortgage. A yes. 600 gets you an FHA mortgage. Absolutely. So don't be discouraged by credit. At the same time, if you want to improve it, small incremental steps could fix it in three months. Yep. And you don't have to go to one of those credit repair specialists to learn that. You can do three things. Number one, get your balances on credit cards down below 40% utilization. Even if it means spreading it across a couple. Don't have one credit card that's maxed out. Number two, don't miss any payments for like three to six months. So assuming you haven't already, great. But if the reason your credit is bad is because you missed some payments, set them on auto pay, put it minimum required. Don't make it a painful auto pay, but whatever the minimum is, make a payment. And I think the third one is make sure that you check your credit to see if there's anything on it that's inaccurate, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you pull the credit and you realize that there's accounts on there that aren't yours, you can then refute that. But that's kind of rare. People having like bogus stuff on their account, right? It is rare, but it happens. And the problem with that is you, it takes time to, to correct it. So if you're regularly checking it, you can kind of catch that. Yeah. There are some, some times I've had just probably about three or four months ago, I had a person with a very similar name that lived on a very similar sounding street. I know that's weird, but when you're putting input, when people are inputting your information and it sounds similar, it gets merged. And his credit was merged with someone else. And I have a very common name. Yeah, I have so many times been like, nope, not me, nope, not me. All right, let's move on to down payment, because this is really interesting. I just read an article this morning that said, from last year to this year, people's average down payment went up by almost 100%. So if they were averaging 10% last year, they're averaging 18% this year. That's insane. People needed to put more down for whatever reason this year compared to last. But talk to me about down payment. That probably was because of the rise in interest rates. They were so trying to pay, buy down the amount they were trying to buy down, or they were trying to get uh, into, you know, like, because Fannie Mae gives, when it comes to credit, we'll just jump real quick to that. Fannie Mae has these hits to in the interest rate depending on down payment. They're called loan level price adjustments, and it's, 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 you don't hear about them, but it's in the, behind the scenes. So they have it for all different things. And when you have a different tier, meaning a 1% or 2% more down payment, could it help you get into the next tier, next sure. level better? You know, so it's, you can, you can find out where the sweet spot is for a particular loan program. But that's, that's an interesting stat. Down payment though, a lot of people think you need to put 20% down. You absolutely do not. In fact, I wouldn't be hard pressed to tell someone nowadays to put all your money down in a house and bury it in, this, in, your, in your basement basically, you know, bury it underneath your house because if you can get into a house with a reasonable payment with 3% or 5% down, why not? You know, the mortgage insurance rates have come way down because they, the mortgage insurance companies have not gone through so many lo have lo losses in the past eight or nine years. They, the underwriting model is making it cheaper and cheaper. Exactly, yeah. And All people right. are defaulting less and less on the mortgages. Yeah. So the default rate being down means private mortgage insurance, which is the PMI they put on a loan if you put less than 20%, is getting cheaper and cheaper. So now a person who maybe it used to be a $150 per month surcharge is now only going to be a $50 per month surcharge. Exactly. To, to only borrow f at 5% down. Exactly. Yeah. I did a loan at 5% and I had 150 per month surcharge. And I remember being like, I will pay 100 a month to not have to tie up 25000 extra dollars. Yeah. It seemed yeah. like a good return on my investment. And sure enough, when I then went to sell the house, because I'd only put down 5%, when I made 10% returns, that 10% returns was on the overall purchase price which made my little 5% down I mean I tripled my down. Yeah, exponentially. Yeah, yeah. Like the less you put down when there's profit at the end, it 
has a higher ROI on that smaller amount. And another thing that people don't realize is you don't need to have PMI forever. You know, we've had the benefit of having some higher values come in, which increases your equity. And when you increase your equity, that means you can apply for or contact the bank or the servicer and say, hey, listen, I want to remove my PMI. And they'll go through the process. Maybe they'll say, yeah, we have enough data in your neighborhood. You could, we're going to remove it. Or maybe you have to get an appraisal. But you don't have to have it forever. So you can, if it was $150 a month, maybe that's only for 14 months. Maybe it's only for 24 months. Yeah, I had mine for seven years, but they did finally remove it. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So the down payment is an important part. It's the hardest part, actually. They say the number one obstacle to buying a home is the down payment. Are there any down payment assistant programs that you know of? Yeah, the, the one I use all the time is MISHTA, Michigan State Housing Development Authority. And um, that's basically you get $7,500 or you get $10,000. 10000 is in... Uh, 236 specific zip codes all over the place in Michigan, you know, and then 7,500, 7,500 is the most popular one, but that that's, you can go, you need a minimum of 640 credit score for that, but um, that'll pay for, you know, your closing costs and down payment and then anything else you need in above that, you have to come up with it. So let's just say you had a $200,000 house and you were going to put 5% down. So that's going to be $10,000. Is that correct? Well, Mr. requires you to put only the minimum down. So if it's FHA, you, have to, you put only 3.5%, and if it's conventional, only 3%. So they require minimum. Yeah, they require minimum. So if you have a $200,000 house, minimum 3% down. Yeah, $6,000. $6,000, and you get a $10,000 grant. Yeah. Which means the entire down payment is covered, yep. and you still have 4000 left over for closing costs, which can that go towards your prepaids? Oh, can go, yeah. Go Towards anything. Everything. The ten, the, the 10, you can walk is, away with a $0 purchase price. You have to have 1%. Mission requires you to have 1% of the deal. Invested. You know, invested, yeah. And then, but the beautiful part about that is you can also, let's say you have your 1% and you're buying a house that's $280,000, I don't know, and, you, and the 10000 won't cover it or the seventy five won't cover it. You can also get seller concessions. So and between now, seller concessions, Mr. Grants, and all the stuff, that 1% could also just buy down your interest rate. Yes. That's incredible. You just have to have 1% of the deal, yeah. Because, I mean, my favorite part about the NACA program is NACA allows you to buy down interest rates at an even cheaper rate, and they allow you to buy it down to zero. I've seen people who put no money into the loan. It's like a 0% down, and they use their entire down payment to just buy interest rate down. So they have a 0% interest on a home. And it's incredible. Like if yeah. you're just paying off the balance, because I know my home that I bought, you know, two hundred thirty thousand dollar purchase price. When you've paid it off thirty years from now, you will have paid four hundred eighty five thousand dollars. It's like, well, it's not worth that, but yeah. whatever. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, the third one, debt ratio. This one has people confused because they're like, what does that mean? What's included in it? Right. Student loans, medical bills, like. There's all these things. Does my cell phone get included? So break down debt ratio. Yeah, the debt ratio is simply the comparison of your minimum monthly payments and your monthly payments compared to your gross monthly income. So income before taxes divided into whatever your debts are. Okay, and the debts aren't all. It's just the debts that are in your credit report, it's not your utility only what bills. Shows up. Not yeah, not utility bills, not credit or not um, cell phones, just things like student loans, minimum payments on credit cards, car payments, lines of credit, 
uh, house payments, obviously, but this is an important one: lease payments. Lease if you have a car lease, you're like, well, I don't own it. It's not a, it's not a mortgage. It's not a loan. But you know what? That lease payment is a mandatory payment every month. And I have watched people go out and get a lease right before they go out to buy a home. You know, this client of mine shows up a brand new Range Rover. I'm like, nice car. Let's not shop right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or return that car. <laughs> you just used up 900 a month of your income. Yeah. And then the ratio, a debt ratio that is favorable is anything 40 and below. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you can go, I mean, FHA allows you to go over 50%, but you have to like, I mean, something called, we put it through an automated underwriting computer system. And if it gets a, re, a certain response, you can go over 50%. You go to 53%, 54%, especially if you have some reserves somewhere. If you have a 401k, if you're retired, if you have a couple thousand in a bank account uh, above and beyond what you're purchasing, you can go higher on the debt ratio. And then talk to me about that. So it's really a simple calculation. If you make 5,000 a month before taxes, and that 5,000 is sitting there as a placeholder, and the home you wanna buy is gonna have a 2,400 monthly payment. 2400 is less than 50%, but above 40% of that 5000 So it's pretty obvious at that point, you're reaching that threshold of between 40 and 50, a little bit more risky borrower to the lender. They're like, mm, let's get some qualifications, let's make sure. But if you're shopping for that $2,400 monthly payment on your 5000 income, but you still have student loans, and you still have a car payment, and you still have some credit card debt, Forget about it. Yeah, it's not going to work. Forget about it. It won't work. Your monthly income needs to include in that 40% or 50% ratio all the debts included. Mm -hmm. So that new house payment, add to it all the other stuff, and it can't exceed 2500 Yep. If that example. Exactly. Okay. Let me jump back to you. You had mentioned a lease, okay? So for a lease payment, this, is, this hasn't been changed in the guidelines yet, but it should. Um, if you have a lease that's up in three months, let's say two months, it's gonna be up before you buy a house. We have to use that payment in your calculation because the assumption is you, you have to get another new vehicle, another car. You're get about the same value. But if you have a if you have a loan and you have three years left on it, you have the ability to pay it down to less than ten payments. So let's say you owe let's say the payment's three hundred and fifty and you owe six thousand. You can pay twenty five hundred of it down and get that removed from your debt ratio because it's now thirty five hundred left. It's ten payments or less. So at ten payments or less, they won't count the loan. Exactly. Is that any loan type or just car loans? Uh, if it's installment loans. Installment so if loans. you have an installment loan less than ten payments, That's you can brilliant. Remember. But if you if you have a bunch of other things going on, they might not. You know, like it's up to underwriter discretion. Up to underwriter. But That's a good tool. Yeah, it's a great tool to use because if someone's real close. And they just need that three hundred dollars is a lot in your debt ratio sometimes, many times. And then, but someone will have some money in their four hundred one k or something. And like take take twenty five hundred bucks out, pay that thing down, and you can, you know, afford the, a different, a much different payment. This is great. I love that you're here and teaching me this new hack. So a new hack is basically ask the underwriters to waive an installment loan from your like debt to income ratio by proving that there's less than 10 payments. They exactly. might, they don't have to, but they no, sure, they they sure might. Right, yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Yeah, I think my car payments, you know, I, I always do like a three year, just to like make it quick, but also not make it too expensive. And I should always remember to do it, you know, two years, so I can get to that 10 months faster. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, what I tell, what I tell people in, the, in most situations, 
is to make that payment as long, I mean, if you have to absolutely get a vehicle and you have to set that set on something, get the payment is spread out as long as possible. I mean, if you're just getting it, if someone's during the process and their car break, they have to get a car. They have to get a car, make it as small a payment as possible. Yes, which means spread it out. Pay whatever you want. If, you know, I mean, if, they, if, it's, a, if it's a 72 month amortization or whatever, and the payment's gonna be 80 bucks cheaper that way, or $150 cheaper that way, do that, and then just pay whatever you want. So you're still, you're not getting burned by the interest because the interest increase is so small, and you can pay that down sooner, you know? But you want that low payment. Because you know? all the underwriters look at is the actual required payment. You can double or triple that exactly. payment, yep. and they don't care. Yeah. All they care about is the smallest. Yeah, exactly. Okay, brilliant. Well, this is great. Um, I know that we uh, printed out a meme, or not a meme, like a, a chart, oh, and yeah. I wanted to go over this yeah. real quick, because this, this had me fascinated. I'm gonna hold it up to the camera real quick. We can uh, get this picture here. Not sure if that's working for you. Um, but what it basically says is there are benefits and drawbacks uh, to the current borrower in the current market. And I think this is fascinating because a lot of people, and we probably could have done this at the very beginning, but I like making people wait till the end to hear the nugget. A lot of people are like, is now a good time to buy? And a lot of people ask, is now a good time to sell? That's the number one question I get in my industry. It's worded all these sorts of ways. Sometimes it's worded, man, this market's crazy. What do you think about it? What they're really asking is, should I be thinking about buying something now or should I be thinking about selling something right now? Because you wanna buy low and you wanna sell high, right? Problem is once you sell high, you probably need to buy again. So you're having to buy high. So trying to like time the market's impossible. So here are some cool benefits and drawbacks to last two years. Benefits, low interest rate. You could buy almost anything because the interest rate was so low. Mm -hmm. People who couldn't afford that big of a house now could because their monthly payment dropped drastically with the interest rate. Drawbacks, insane competition, limited inventory. I mean, we're talking insanely limited, like one-fifth of what we were used to seeing. Multiple offers, having to come in 10%, 20% over appraised value, having to waive inspections, waive appraisals. Like, it was a terrible market to buy, and yet everyone tried to because the interest rates were so low. How many refis did you do in the last two years? Um, well, COVID made it kind of crazy. Yeah. And uh, the interest rates dropped so much, so we were doing a ton of refis. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. How many did you do? I mean, I mean hundreds. Hundreds I mean, of refis. Hundreds, yeah. I mean... I love it. Hundreds no one's, and hundreds of refis. No one's refinancing right now. Not unless they need to pull cash out. They pull cash out, yeah. yeah. The benefits of now. So why would you want to buy now? I love this. There is reduced competition. We do have increased inventory, although I will say we are still at about one-third of a balanced, healthy market. You're supposed to have six months or more of inventory sitting on the market for there to be a balance between buyers and sellers. We're not saying prices aren't dropping because interest rates are rising and it's getting more expensive to buy. Like The price drops is indicative of, oh, it's a buyer's market now, but it's not. It's still skewed in favor of the sellers because of the amount of inventory. A well-priced home is still fought over. Uh, but there are fewer multiple offer situations. There are uh, buyers able to win at a more modest price. You don't have to waive the appraisal. You don't have to waive the inspection. Like, we are seeing a much more stable, balanced market. That's huge benefits. One drawback, higher interest rates. So it's like, yeah. is now a good time to buy? Yes, for all those reasons, this is a great time to buy. Yeah, and when people ask me, you know, um, about the rates, or they'll, you know, they'll, they'll think, when I put them a rate and they think it should be lower or they're used to a different number. In 1999, 
<coughs> I built a home. My interest rate was 7.5% on a five-year arm. 7.5% on a five-year arm, and I was happy as a clam. I was like, great, let's go. And nowadays, the interest rate's creeping up. It's around, let's just say, 7% for a 30-year fixed. Seven and a quarter. Seven and a quarter, yeah, for a 30-year fixed. And if you wanted to get an adjustable rate, we won't we talk about that now. But, I mean, the bottom line is interest rates are still good. Historically speaking, interest rates are so good. They're not where they were. They're not as low as they were in these recent years. But that's abnormal. Just get rid of the last few years out of your mind. It's just not. It's not the way it usually is. I got into a little bit of an altercation, a little fight with one of my employees because they were complaining that the Fed is being reckless with their rate hikes. I'm like, but the problem is the economy is still escalating too quickly. Like their job isn't done yet. We still saw inflation one percent month over month. 1%. That, that could be 12% over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. So they have to do something about it. So I don't fault them for it. And I agree with you. 7% is probably one of the healthiest interest rates that can exist in a balanced market. So if we're seeing a little bit more inventory hit, we're seeing healthy interest rates that make everybody a little bit of money, make people happier to lend because they're making better rates on it. The government will finally get more funded. Like, think about this. When they're doing 0% yeah. on their bonds... Zero percent on their like money. What does that mean for the actual federal government's like longevity? They need to increase the interest rate. It's great. I'm happy for it. I love this market. We actually are at a slight increase year over year from last year. Excellent. Isn't that insane? Yeah. Yeah. Rare. And getting back to the benefits and the drawbacks. I mean, the, the things that people don't realize is the. Even if you get a 30-year fixed, whatever your rate is, it's not set in stone. Rates have cycles. There are rate cycles to the mark, to the economy. And if you buy a home now and you get a rate that you think is not as low as you want it to be, there's a strong possibility in the future that rate will, you'll have the opportunity to refinance and get something else. Here's know? my logic, and it's flawless. So we're going to end with this tidbit because we've you know, sweated to death in this podcast booth long enough. Here's my logic. If you think the rates will go down in the future, when they go down, what will happen to prices? They'll go up. So if you think they're going to go down in the future, lock it in now where the prices are actually not escalated and then refinance when they go down. And if you're wrong and the rates go up in the future, aren't you happy you locked in the lowest rate currently possible? So it's like you either lock it in now because it's never going to come back down to this for the next 10 years and you need to buy in the next 10 years or it does go down and you can refinance then. But right now with a market where you can actually negotiate with sellers and you can get pricing that you want and honestly I've seen some sellers do some really big price reductions. This one home in Boston Edison listed at like 389 is down to 310. We're talking $70,000 off the purchase price. That's 20% discount. That 20% is about as far as we're going to expect any kind of a huge market correction to happen. You can pre-buy the market correction. That's incredible. It is. And you can do so at an interest rate that might be the lowest it's going to be for the next three years. Yep. So yep. And, buy. And, buy, and sellers are giving seller concessions. Seller concessions are a tool I love to use. Free money. Exactly. Because people can get that and not bring that money into the closing table. Yep. That's, people don't, they want to put the least amount down. And that's a, a great tool to use. And sellers are open to it now for a lot of reasons. And we're in the past. Those past two years, it was just, you, you mentioned it. You know, you had to go over asking price. They weren't, 
They didn't care what the appraisal came in at. They didn't care about what the inspection said. You're buying the house or I got 15 people else that want to buy it. Yeah, I got three emails this morning. I checked my email. Three of them were from listing agents saying, my seller is highly motivated. We have lowered the price and we're including $10,000 concession to your clients and a $5,000 agent bonus. It's like they're just throwing money to get this house off the market. So now is a good time to swoop in with your pre-approval letter armed and ready to buy that house. And when you do so, call Mario. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you.